Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, and there we read the verses 32 through 43. Acts 9, verses 32 through 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise. And make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, since Lydda was Near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This truly is the word of God. The congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus told his disciples, his followers, that when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, that they would receive power. And being empowered by the Holy Spirit, they would be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea, then spreading out to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And as you read the rest of the book of Acts, we see how that expanding circle of witness is carried out so that in Acts 1, the the followers of Jesus and Jesus himself before his ascension are in Jerusalem, but when you get to the end of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is in Rome, the very center of the Roman Empire. And so this power was extraordinary in many ways in its manifestations, and it served not just to sort of be a kind of divine magic act, that's not the purpose of miracles at all, but rather the miracles are to confirm the actual presence of Jesus' powerful kingdom. It confirms that to all who would see it and and listen to it. It serves to confirm the apostolic word and the message It also is a power that restores life and demonstrates, therefore, in that restoration of life, something of what the nature of the kingdom of God is. It is a kingdom in which there is life, there is healing, 
There is food in abundance. The miracles give us a glimpse of the miraculous power and nature of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In any case, after Stephen was martyred earlier, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, such that many of the believers now begin to scatter. But in scattering, it only took believers to many other regions of Canaan, Palestine so that in being scattered, they now serve as witnesses wherever Christ placed them. Saul of Tarsus actually leads the way in the persecution. So that by the time when we come to Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus is on his way to, to Damascus. He has letters with him that have been signed by the priests in Jerusalem, authorizing him to go to Damascus to find Christians and to arrest them, and if necessary, drag them back to Jerusalem to further the persecution of the church. But Jesus Christ instead stops him and arrests him and turns him around by the power of his Holy Spirit so that he who once was persecuting the church now becomes known as the one who is a follower of Jesus Christ something that would obviously astonish even uh, most the earliest believers because there is nothing that nothing that would explain Paul's conversion by ordinary means something supernatural happened to him and turned him around so Jesus tells him to rise Saul of Tarsus rise Go into the city and there await the further marching orders of the king. Now on this Sunday, just before the holiday that we Americans call Labor Day, you must hear that same command that the church proclaims to the world, but also that Christ proclaims to his church. I minister God's holy word to you from Acts 9, the verses 32 through 43, under the theme... Jesus commands his workers to arise. Please notice, first of all, the power of this command. Secondly, notice who are the objects of this command. And then finally, the need for this command in our day and age. This command is demonstrated in the miracles that we have read here in Acts 9, 32-43. The story switches now from Saul of Tarsus, that is Paul, it switches from him to Peter. After Saul's conversion to Christianity, the church then began to experience a period of peace, a period of peaceful growth under the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Peter goes out to visit the saints in the various communities in west-central Palestine. He comes to the city, the town of Lydda, and there he finds a man named Aeneas. Now, whether Aeneas is a Christian or not is not explicitly said, but most likely he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because Peter is going around to visit the various saints and the various congregations. Now, he's been bedridden for eight years. I knew a lady once, she has now passed away, who was bedridden for 35 years. And yet when you meet her, when you met her, you would find her own testimony, her own expression of faith, 
just as vibrant, just as as uh, joyful as any newborn Christian. I'm not saying she didn't have periods of trial, but the Lord blessed her with his presence and his Holy Spirit such that though she was bedridden and had to be cared for by loving family members, she still was a very vibrant Christian. And she carried on her own, what should we say, ministry, encouragement, prayer, advice. These things are also avenues of service. You know, we we value physical activity, physical ability, maybe too much so that when persons uh, don't have the same amount of physical uh, ability or opportunity, we think, well, you know, what can they do? But people who even are bedridden also can carry on a very vibrant Christian ministry. But Peter finds Aeneas bedridden. He's been on that bed paralyzed for eight years. Was he carrying on any kind of ministry? Again, the text falls silent on that. Is he joyless? Well, the text doesn't really say. I'm sure Aeneas also found himself challenged in many, many spiritual ways. But Peter comes to him and demonstrates in this miracle something of the reality of the kingdom of God. Aeneas, get up. Make your bed, get up. And immediately he does. He does. No longer joyless or useless in the kingdom. If he had been without joy. Actually, this is the command of the Lord Jesus. It's not Peter's command as such. Arise, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he does. But notice the effect on all those who, who see of it and hear of it. In the region, this, this miracle becomes known and the text tells us, verse 35, that many turned to the Lord. Ten miles away. Ten miles away, there's a seaport, Joppa. There were Christians in Joppa. And one of the Christians in the congregation in Joppa was a woman by the name of Tabitha. Now her Greek name, the Greek translation would be Dorcas, which means gazelle. Again, why she named gazelle? Possibly because of you know, very bright, beautiful eyes that they noticed at her birth. We do not know. And she is a remarkable woman. But not that she was super intelligent or related to important people. We don't read anywhere that she's related to you know, the Herods of the world or high officials of the government. No. What does Luke record for us? Verse 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity, acts of love, acts of self-giving. What did she do? She took care of the poor. Now maybe she was a widow herself. That's possible. And in any case, she made clothing, tunics, outer garments, inner garments, especially for the poor, especially for widows. Now, in that culture, widows did not get a monthly check from the government. They did not. 
They were dependent upon the love and concern of their own family members and more widely the community around them. They were the poorest of the poor often, the neediest in the ancient world. But Dorcas spent her days filled with the sweet spirit of the Lord Jesus, helping out the needy by sewing garments for them. She surrendered her humble life to the Lord Jesus and she gave herself in Joppa to his devoted service. Now it happens that she dies. This is very sad. Her body is washed according to custom in preparation for her burial. But news gets around Peter's nearby. A mere ten miles or so away in Lydda, Peter is there. And so two men immediately are dispatched to go to Lydda to uh, beg, ask, request, Peter, please come with us. Come to Joppa. And he comes. And when he comes, he's met by this large group of widows, sobbing, weeping. They show Peter the garments that this woman made while she was still with them, still alive. But now she's gone. Very sad. She's gone. No more good works from her. No more acts of kindness. No more warm smiles and loving encouragement from this follower, this disciple of Jesus. Peter does something that he saw the Lord do himself during his own ministry. You remember when the daughter of Jairus dies and Jesus comes and he sends all of the mourners out except for just a few select disciples. Well, Peter dismisses the whole crowd. Just please step outside. He kneels in prayer and then he commands the woman, the lady, to arise. Tabitha, Dorcas, get up. Her eyes open. She sees Peter and she sits up. He takes her by the hand and he presents her alive to the group of mourners outside. And now again, news of this resurrection of this woman begins to spread in the area. And again, the text tells us that many believed in the Lord. Verse 42, many believe in the Lord. Because obviously, the Lord Jesus, no longer physically with them, still exercises the power of the kingdom. In the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the dead are raised. Now this is a nice story, isn't it? It's a true story and it's a very nice story. It warms our hearts. Here's Aeneas, a man bedridden for eight years. He, he is healed of his paralysis. He gets up. Here's Dorcas, this wonderful Christian saint. She dies and she is raised from the dead. But brothers and sisters, once again, these are miracles. They are not magic acts that are meant to dazzle our eyes. But miracles are powerful actions that require of us faith. They are calling us to believe that Jesus is alive, that he is the life-giving spirit, 
and that at His word the dead are raised. They are signs that Jesus is very much alive and well, that He is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the only living way. For the power that raised these two people up was the Spirit's power. The same power that raised Jesus' body to life on resurrection morning. The same power that gives you life, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That engrafts you into Christ, the living vine. And that being engrafted into Christ, we become fruitful in His service. Outside of the kingdom, there is only death. Outside of the kingdom of God, there is only decay. There is hell. But in that kingdom, there's life. There's resurrection. There's purpose. There's meaning in the kingdom of God. Aeneas is healed, and Dorcas is raised from the dead. At the command of Jesus Christ, uttered by the holy apostle Peter, of course, Jesus has the keys of life and death. Jesus can speak the word and the dead are healed. The dead are raised and the sick are healed. But now, you and I need to take a closer look in the second place at those who are the objects of this command. Brothers and sisters, not just was the power of God displayed but it's a life-giving power to whom? For the small workers in the kingdom of God, a man in Lydda by the name of Aeneas, did you ever hear of him before? He is never again mentioned in Scripture. A seamstress by the name of Dorcas in the city of Joppa, she will never be mentioned in the Bible again after this chapter. Now, there were other Christians who were suffering persecution, and certainly there were other Christians who are dying. Again, earlier in an earlier chapter, we read about Stephen the martyr, and he has a sermon recorded in Acts 7. Stephen, the great and eloquent deacon, is martyred. But who is it that is raised from the dead? Not Stephen the eloquent deacon, but Dorcas the seamstress of all people. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why? Why Dorcas? Well, because she was simply a worker in the kingdom of God. She was one of those believers, men and women, young people, who, who make up the rank and file of God's workforce. As one Christian writer puts it, he, he points out that the ministry of Dorcas to the poor was the Holy Spirit's work. Yes, the Holy Spirit is interested in Christian workers who sew clothes for the poor. And death had interrupted that. And remember, death is an enemy. It's an awful enemy. It is a cold enemy. It is a vicious enemy. And it will be conquered. But at this point in, in redemptive history, it is still a cold and cruel enemy. 
And therefore, Peter came to bring the healing power of Jesus' spirit so that her work in the kingdom might continue. For how long? We don't know. Does she live just for a couple of more weeks, several years, maybe many years? We simply don't know. But she is raised from the dead because she too is important in the kingdom of God. Now what lesson do we learn from this? Let's go to the cemetery and command the dead to rise? No. No. That we should all become people who sow for the poor? Hardly. Because by raising Dorcas from the dead and Aeneas from a sick bed, our Lord Jesus Christ is declaring that all Christian work and all Christian workers, that his people, even his little people, are important in his eyes and is significant for the witness that it bears to the coming of God's kingdom. This is good news. Every labor and all his laborers are under his sovereign command. Arise from the dead to your tasks, commands the Lord Jesus. Now the need for this perspective on work with Jesus' command for his people to arise is never more needed than it is today. It is needed today. Because Christian workers often are themselves sick in spirit, paralyzed, and demoralized. Before I went on to seminary, I worked in a factory making windows. And this is the refrain of so many workers, even those who profess to be believers in Jesus. I wish it were coffee break. I wish it were the weekend. Oh, that weekend, that weekend, that weekend. I wish it were my vacation. They wish their lives away. Rather than seeing, yeah, assembly line work is tedious work. It can be. But you can also make it an island in which the witness for the Lord Jesus Christ is evident that even in this work, something of our obedience to God's command in his creation is manifested. The world takes note when even Christians are wishing their lives away, when they hate their work, when they do nothing that is productive. The world takes note of that, and the people of the world then therefore miss in us the joy that should characterize our own service. If we eat and drink, we do it all for the glory of God. But if we eat and drink only for ourselves, yes, the people who are not believers will note that. They will see that. They pick up on, on our own attitudes and the actions that we perform. What about the economic picture now? Where is the joy that we sing about on Sunday, but the joy in our labor in the week? Is that evident? Some factors make it cynical unless we hear closely the words that Jesus commands his people, arise and work. Otherwise, we will remain Christians who work rather than Christian workers. There is a difference. Some Christians, yeah, they're 
they're obviously Christians on Sunday, but then you go into the week and you cannot tell that they were ever a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians who work rather than Christian workers. You see, if if our own joy in serving God, even in little things, eating, drinking, sewing clothes, if that is not evident, then other voices will enter in and they will become loud and dominant. Let me illustrate that from history. In the year 1848, it was a very turbulent year in Europe. There were revolutions in France, in Germany, and in Hungary. And over in Brussels, Belgium, in a library, with his books, this man, this this German social theorist, was just writing and writing and writing longer works and pamphlets. And he wrote a pamphlet, a short booklet, and he closed it with these words, 1848. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declared that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. The social theorist who was penning those words in the revolutionary year of 1848 was Karl Marx. And his ideas once controlled, more or less, one-third of the population of planet Earth. Nothing to lose but their chains? Mention that in North Korea. A world to win? Working men unite? The issues that some, not all, that some working people face are tough. Poor job conditions, greedy union bosses who swing their weight as tyrants. Sometimes there's unfair treatment by the boss or management. There's low wages in dead-end jobs. These things do exist. I know, I understand that. And most work comes to be viewed, therefore, as routine drudgery. But brothers and sisters, you cannot allow these things to determine how you are going to live. You and I are united to Christ. And being united to that vine, we we draw from Christ. The words, the energy, the spirit, the productivity that shows to us that we march to a different drummer. That we are in this world, but we are not of this world. That we do many of the things that our neighbors do, but we do it for a much different reason. Yes, our neighbors eat and drink, but when we eat and drink, we do it all for the glory of God. God made man and woman workers. Not workaholics, but workers. Work is already mentioned in Genesis 1. Before the fall into sin. Before the fall into sin. We are called to work. This is built into our nature. Work is good. And without work, man becomes lost, sometimes even broken. And Sid did not remove this ability to work. But why do you work? 
Why? One Christian put it this way, and I think very insightfully, there are two reasons why people work. Either because of needs or because of calling. He wrote, the difference between motivation by needs and that by vocation that is calling is that in the former, when you work for needs, you make yourself the starting point and the end point. But when we work because of calling, that is God's calling, we renounce our own person in everything and we become aware of our responsibility to God. Our responsibility is to God. Life, even working life, is from God. And while you and I have it, it must be given in sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ as our reasonable service. Offer your bodies. Romans 12, verse 1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. For the purpose of life is to bring glory to God by bearing lasting fruits for Jesus Christ. Christian life requires, therefore, thankful sacrifice. Now, let no one conclude from this that this demands that if you really want to be a full-time Christian worker, you become a minister, a missionary, or a Christian school teacher. Those are marvelous, wonderful callings. But the call of Jesus Christ is for all of you to become obedient to his call, to arise and serve him where he places you, where he places you, as a trucker, as a wife and mother, as an electrician, a mechanic, a pilot, a seamstress. Yes, even seamstresses can rise from the dead in the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Creating Christian workers, not just Christians who work, but Christian workers is no less a miracle than restoring a, a paralytic or raising someone from the dead. The world mourns when Christian work and Christian workers retreat. They hide their talents and their identity and their calling under a bushel basket and thus disappear. The world needs to see.